Hello, everybody. This is Jeremy Swenson. I'm the CEO of Abstract Forward Consulting. We are a firm that focuses on cybersecurity, process improvement, and change management consulting. This is our podcast, and in the studio today, we have James Redman, an experienced third-party risk management and assessment auditor, and also someone who has the personal certification in the high trust category. Uh, we're going to talk today about those topics and I'd like James just to go ahead and give an introduction on his background. Hey Jeremy, thanks for uh, letting me on your podcast. Yeah, so I, I have a background in the uh, IT security, IT audit, and then especially on the third-party risk management. And so I've uh, worked at United Health Group for three years. I've just building out their pro- their program, uh, application security, cloud security, and then we base a lot of that stuff on the high trust framework. I don't think everybody in the audience even knows about the High Trust framework. So just take a few minutes, explain to us what is High Trust, how did you get acquainted and certified in it, what is that process like? High Trust really, it's been around for about 10 years, but it really took off uh, in about 2014, 2015. Pretty much United Health Group was the first company that was really on board uh, with, with requiring that requirement, not only for United Health Group, but for all their vendors. So we're looking at um, United Health Group is Fortune 6, the leading healthcare provider in, in pretty much the world. And their vendor population is, is significant. And so when they required all their vendors to be high trust certified within 18 months, it really put high trust on the map. And high trust is really dedicated to providing uh, security requirements for healthcare. Uh, previously to high trust, a lot of people relied on HIPAA or high tech, which, which had some general guidance, but didn't really have the prescriptive controls that was required. And so, you know, doing these vendor assessments for United Health Group, we really saw security all over the map. We, we saw some companies that had phenomenal security, but a lot of companies didn't. And, and from what I've seen is most companies do not do security unless they're required to by their clients. Um, there, there's, it seems like about 10% of clients really do take security seriously. And you know, when we come on site, you know, they're, they're really strong controls, but majority of them don't. And so high, tr- and so a lot of, um, the CEOs of these major healthcare p- providers realize that we need a stronger security framework that was dedicated to healthcare. And so HIPAA was the one that was chosen. It's, uh, it, it's a, it's a very prescriptive scalable framework, depending on how much PHI you have, how many records, what is your size, geographical locations. Uh, you can dictate what levels of high trust you require from you. There's levels one, two, and three. And also, you know, if you're doing PCI, if you're state of Massachusetts, uh, Texas, so there's different regulatory at the state level. So high trust is really the framework that most companies, most is, it's, it's dedicated to healthcare at this time. Uh, I, I know in the future that they are trying to go more industry agnostic, but uh, right now it's dedicated to healthcare. And can you talk about, some of the controls that come as a part of the high trust assessment. Give me maybe a couple of examples of controls that you've seen with and why they're good. Uh, so it just really high trust. The controls in high trust really are not necessarily unique. They take they take uh, controls from NIST, from uh, PCI. You can look on their literature. They encompass a lot of controls from these various frameworks. Put them together. So like your standard like access controls policy and procedures, but it, it just very, the difference with high trust is very prescriptive. So I know like other frameworks like SOC 2 is, you know, what, what controls do you use to meet this criteria? High trust is, it, you know, do this 
in, in a prescriptive way, and, and the wording kind of has to match the controls. And, and so it's 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 very prescriptive. A lot of times you have to go on the high trust site and pull up their individual controls. So it's, it can be anywhere from 150 to uh, you know up to 1400. It, it kind of really dictates on on the size of, of the frame, but it's a general comprehensive uh, framework. So if I'm a healthcare IT executive, I can look at the high trust controls and make sure my organization is complying with those. And ideally, uh, if we do that, you know, we're going to at least be secure at the bare bone level, though conforming to a framework never guarantees security. I'm looking here at the certification criteria for for high trust version 8.1 on my computer. A couple of the areas that I see covered Privilege management being one, network connection control being another, uh, service delivery, segregation of duties, change management, backup, network controls, teleworking roles and responsibilities, disposal of media, electronic messaging, information security awareness, education and training, which I would say that last one is probably the most important one. Um, So with that in mind, information security awareness, education and training, I'd like to move to a different topic, which is generally about you know your background in vendor risk management assessment i know you spent a lot of time with that at uhg but even um, you spent some time at a couple of uh, respected accounting firms doing that same type of work so talk to us about third-party risk management what are some of the typical pitfalls that you've seen and maybe a couple of examples of where organizations have really done well with it vendor management it's 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 very complicated it takes uh, a lot of the pitfalls, I'm just kind of go through a lot of the things I've seen that don't work. Uh, what a lot of companies do is uh, just send out a questionnaire to you know, to their vendors and say, fill this out. Um, so you, you send out 150 to 300 question questionnaire. Uh, your your clients, you know, fill them out, get back to you. But what does that really mean? You, you can say, you know, do you have uh, a policy? Yes, no. Uh, do you have two-factor authentication? Yes, no. So you can get a lot of results and say, no, we don't have two-factor authentication. So boom, that would trigger a finding. Uh, you know, and then, then what are you going to do about it? Are you going to are you going to follow up with it? Or are you just going to assign a risk score to the vendor? So it's kind of so you get a questionnaire, but you can get these answers. You may or may not know if they're accurate. Uh, and then what are you going to do with that? So there's there's a lot of pitfalls. So for one instance, is you assign a risk score to a vendor. Um, so you have uh, let's just say let's just pick on target. You know, vendor target is at uh, 87 score. What does that really mean? A lot of times, a lot of the time, these, these security questionnaires, you really need to bring the business into it. You need to understand what is that relationship. So if, if Target uh, has your PHI data, it, maybe it's not even at Target. Maybe it's in Amazon. It's in the cloud. So a lot of the a lot of the findings related to Target corporate, really, I mean, they do apply, but they really are not that important if everything is locked into the cloud and only one or two people at Target have access to that cloud environment. And so you got to be able to take that, you got to understand relationship, tailor the questions to the relationship, and then figure out where is the true risk items. So James, I want to just interject here. I have some knowledge about these type of um, assessments. And I think the problem that you're getting at is that the questions out of the box don't fully understand the context in which they're asked. So a good auditor or assessor, if you will, really needs to do a job, a good job upfront, understanding the business context. Um, some questions 
on these vendor risk management assessments may be relevant. Some may not. It depends upon the type of business that you're dealing with. And as we all know, most of the major breaches, network intrusion, penetration, if not all of them, none of them have happened because the organizations failed to go through one of these assessments. They've all done that. They've got the paperwork to prove that they've done the assessments, that everything was checked off. Um, and, the, and the people that come in typically, I'm, I'm going to sort of rip on accounting firms for a minute here, but those people, they come in with no experience at that business. They're good at knowing you know, the principles generally of IT audit, third-party risk management assessment, but what they don't know is that organization. And the people who know it are the people who have been there for years and helped build the products, write the processes and policies, and they know about all the hidden um, details that, that make a huge difference in accurately assessing risk. If we take a look at the target data breach, that was a vendor risk management-related incident where it was an HVAC vendor who had access to do maintenance to the HVAC systems at the retail stores. They had done all the assessments. What the assessments didn't accurately catch was how close that vendor would be in having internet access to the actual point of sale server connection points. And there's an example where something was missed. A more thorough vendor risk assessment would have caught something like that. But those are just few of my thoughts hearing you talk, but but continue on with you know your stories about how do vendors get it right, um, what can companies do to, to be really on the cusp of innovation with vendor risk management assessment. Yeah, so obviously with Target, the, the information that we've heard publicly, it's probably not fully what happened privately, but you know based on you know what, what what's public is right, right. So you have a vendor, and you can do the vendor assessment, but a lot of times. You, the question that might have been missed there is they didn't talk internally to figure out the people actually managing the HVAC relationship within Target. Did you actually understand what they really do and what kind of level of access do they have within Target? And, and so that's one thing I, I see a pitfall where people don't actually really understand the whole relationship internally. And again, you got to look at vendor management. Sometimes you only have so much budget and time. So you kind of have to draw a line to how deep you can go. So scoping their relationship is like with Target. Is what what do they actually do for us? What kind of level of access do they have? And sometimes you sometimes a lot of companies don't even have the information. They, they they might have a list of vendors. They might have some vagueness of what they do for us. So when I do the assessments, the first step is what do they do for us internally? Try to have that conversation with that business representative. Tell them what you're doing, and also try to get them behind you to back back you and do this assessment. Because if you do an assessment and something comes up out of it, your, your business is really your your, your final audience. Uh, as a security professional, yeah, we can raise our hand and say this is insecure, uh, dr drop the business and run. But you know, business needs to, needs to succeed, and we need to you know help the business build security relationships. So and when you get to that, you got to talk to the internal representative, tell them what the problem is, and look at solutions. Uh, can you, you know, minimize that protected data that they have access to? Can you set up, uh, let's just say with the HVAC, can you set up uh, a Citrix environment where, yeah, they can access your environment to do their work, but you have a Citrix or a virtualized environment where it's all kind of stayed within a sandbox. So even if that vendor is compromised, their amount of access to within target is very limited. So they might be able to do 
get into some of these systems to see it, but they won't be able to extract that data uh, back out. And, and so, like, so there's a lot of tangents to this uh, vendor management system that needs to be looked at. And so it's not always you can do this in day one, but just kind of get the ball rolling and figure out how to build an effective uh, risk management program with, especially with internal involvement. And I just want to remind our audience that you are certified in a few different things, James. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your certifications and how you use those applicable to vendor risk management assessment. Right. So I started out, you know, in finance role accounting. Uh, I was trying to do a combination of accounting and IT. So I had the CPA, uh, which is now inactive. But I've always done the IT audit, IT security realm. I've never actually done the um, the finance side, but I have a good background in what is the finance processes. And, and so with with so I got the CPA, uh, the CISP, Certified Information Security Professional, Certified Information System Auditor. Uh, also uh, certified in high trust uh, on a personal level. So all these certifications really help come together in the, in the, in the vendor risk management process. Cause you kind of need to understand the financial side of, of, of a business. Um, and obviously high trust is good for healthcare. Uh, and also understand that security. So it's kind of a, I'm kind of more of a unicorn in that space where I can understand the business and the security side. And I can talk to the finance, I can talk to CPAs, uh, I can talk the security realm. So it's it, all those kind of really come together for you know vendor risk management. Wow, what a great background. We're so lucky to be talking to you, James. Thanks for being here. I want you to talk about a situation where you were doing a vendor risk management assessment and, and the company just had to be cut. There was just too much risk there and you just couldn't work with the company. That's a hard cut to make, but companies have to make that cut. How does the company make that decision, especially if they're on the fence. Maybe it may be a company that has a really good product, a good software, or they do really good work. They don't want to have to not do business with the company, but they can't because the risk is too high or there's too much ambiguity. So again, first part of the question, situation, you saw a vendor, you guys had to cut. And then the second part of the question, how do you deal with that ambiguity? There's a situation where you know a smaller healthcare clinic uh, I, set, I initially set up a, a Citrix session with with her, and she was unable to access the Citrix session. And so I asked her what computer she's using. She said she's using Windows XP. And so initially, that kind of threw up a red flag. And and then I started realizing like how much inf- how much information are we sending to them? You know what can we do? And, and so I mean after that after that initial meeting, I, I went to the business representative and just says you know here's what we're looking at. Uh, you know, being that they have Windows XP. That's a huge red flag to me. I, I don't really suspect they have a lot of security control. Do you want to continue with this assessment? So right away, before you waste everyone's time, just talk to them, see what they say. Uh, a lot of times they'll say, yes, you know, go ahead with the assessment because we need, need at least document internally why we need to cut this vendor. So there, you're, you're gonna see a lot of consolidation in the vendor management space. And a lot of it's, you know, it's, you know, it's just kind of the the point is these smaller companies cannot meet have all these security controls in, in place, especially if you're a bigger company that has strong security control posture that you need to be in place. So you're going to see consolidation there. the The second part is what happens if you have a vendor that's key that has a lot of security risk, but you need them. Uh, they do a critical niche role, or they have a critical role in the business where you cannot uh, just terminate. So then you have that's where it gets really really interesting. Uh, I, I've seen, there's no clear answer to what to do here. I have seen situations where these bigger companies, you know, there's it, it, kind of big companies that also need to help with the smaller companies where create processes where 
these smaller companies can do the work and, but not have the risk of the data. So you, you set up a sandbox for them to do the work. You can provide them laptops for them to do the work. Uh, you know, you, they have to come on site and do the work versus in their office. Uh, can you remove the protected data? If you're sending them data, can you remove the protected data so they only do the data that's worked? Can you de-anonymize it? Can you change the key identifiers into a random uh, key chart where they can do the work and if, if somebody else, a malicious actor gets it, it's not, it's not, it's not valuable, but when it comes back, you can match it up against his key and then it'll pull into that critical data. So there's a lot of things and that's where it really takes outside the box thinking to get these small companies to do the work without bringing a lot of data security risk to the company. Wow. Those are some great, great examples. Another thing that companies are dealing with in this context is the offshoring opportunity. So a lot of the IT functions um, being done out of India or um, Ireland, Philippines, Malaysia, etc. And with that, uh, oftentimes comes a lower price tag and um, a cultural difference. But in your experience, how have you seen offshoring affect vendor risk management? Yeah, so I actually have a lot of experience with this. So what the, the, the biggest problem that with offshoring this role is you really need it, it, half of this role is business related, half is security. So anybody can take a security questionnaire, look at it and say, okay, these controls are missing, but can they follow up, have a conversation with your internal business representatives, which could be up to VPs in your company, as well as CEOs level at your client companies. Can they manage, uh, you know, maybe a, a pretty frank conversation on, you know, how to get two-factor authentication in place. How can you protect that business relationship with two-factor? It's in a lot of these offshore people, they just don't have the, the U S cultural knowledge, the business acronym to run those high level meetings and get the results that are needed. So a lot of times what you see is there's kind of reverting to the control, uh, just, just repeating to the client, you know, two, we need a two-factor in place without really having the in-depth business conversations with the client and your business representatives. There's a lot of talk now about the cloud, outsourcing to the cloud, running servers in the cloud, and it can be pretty cost effective and it's a way for organizations to move that risk or that service to a third party. In your experience, James, what are some of the trade-offs that you've seen with the cloud? Yeah, so if you're a small company, cloud is the only way you can even get the security controls in place. Uh, you know, bigger companies and mid-sized is a little different story. But for assessing vendors in the cloud, you know that is a whole nother ball game. Uh, you'll have your, your 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 vendors say, "We're an Amazon, we're secure." You know, Amazon handles all of our our security, and here's the Amazon SOC two report. But it, it, so as as an assessor looking at a firm that has stuff in the cloud, you need to you can't just say check the box in Amazon. How can you assess an Amazon environment? that that your vendor is in you, you a lot of times your right to audit is with the vendor and you can't go to amazon and say i'm gonna do a pen test i mean th there's a lot of legal ambiguity with a third-party cloud but a lot of times what you can do is you, you can look at vendors what what's a vendor doing to secure amazon so you can look at their admin portals are they do they have two-factor in place for them to access amazon um, and what what service lines of of amazon are you using um, you know, so it's like, is encryption in place? 
So a lot of times they'll say, oh yeah, Amazon covers encryption, they cover all that, just as blank slate and they're good to go. But you need to figure out, do they actually have these settings enabled within Amazon? So it, it's, it takes, uh, and each one of these playbooks are not audit playbooks. They're, they're, they're very tough to cover cloud. And, and, and especially with cloud, the security posture is always changing. And what uh, Amazon and, and especially they like to roll all these new security features year after year. And there's not really much training going on to the people admin, to the people administering these clouds. Do they actually enable all the right settings? Another thing that comes up with cloud outsourcing is the question of how much of it does an organization do. So if I'm a CIO or if I'm a chief information security officer, um, I'm probably not going to have everything be in the cloud. That's just probably too much. Um, with the cloud. Obviously, the cloud provider handles some of that risk. Should an incident occur, that cloud provider, like an Amazon, is, is pretty fortified, pretty trained, and pretty resilient. There's been very few cases of Amazon or Google, even Microsoft, having, having been down for long periods of time because so many organizations are dependent upon their infrastructure offerings. But that CIO or that CISO they should still have some stuff run in-house because they can control that and see that to a different degree than what they can see outside. So I think there's a, there's a mix. I don't know if it's 80-20% or if it's 70-30. It depends upon the company. But the point is you, you got to use the cloud to your advantage. And with vendor risk management and cloud, kind of reminds me of backups or resiliency. Uh, having multiple options for your infrastructure. Um, so maybe your, your your primary vendor for outsourced cloud infrastructure is Amazon, but do you have one on the back burner? Do you have one that's you know ready to go should Amazon have a major incident? Because let's face it, all these big cloud providers are at some point going to lose their leadership position. You know, Amazon could have a major incident. Google could. Let's hope they don't. But so have you, have you seen with organizations that have a standby cloud provider ready, that they have a backup plan that they could roll over to a different provider in the event that something were to happen? And then what is the mix in your mind that good CIOs and CISOs have for percent at cloud and percent that's not in cloud? Yeah. So I've, I've never really seen companies really have a backup cloud. They really rely on... Amazon's redundancy, they're really relying on Amazon to provide the backup for them. So if Amazon goes down, uh, I think, you know, it's kind of like I remember, uh, a couple years ago, East Coast had an incident where uh, there's a significant percentage of the U.S. lost, lost on, you know, their internet to their site. So, I mean, that's, that's a big single point of failure, almost more on a national infrastructure level. Amazon does have failovers. I, I know a little bit about the Amazon infrastructure, and I know that if you are using them, they do have multiple data centers throughout the United States that if one goes down, they will roll over to another. But that doesn't mean that they're always going to maintain their leadership reputation in this space. I mean, they're good right now. Don't get me wrong. Very respected. But the point is, and this is probably applicable for the midsize to the bigger companies more than the smaller, especially companies that have a lot of data and are generating more and more data, like healthcare is a perfect example. I can't imagine the big healthcare players just relying on one cloud provider or even two yeah so kind of with amazon you see 
they like to Amazon their own cloud environment. So all their names, structure, everything is kind of the Amazon way. And that, that's why I'm starting to see more companies going to Azure because it's, it follows the same structure as their on-site data centers. And the same you know, operating systems, the same, same type of wording structure. So if you had to, so let's say you want to move away from Amazon. You're going to have to totally rebuild your data center, um, you know, take everything out, translate it from Amazon back into Microsoft speak, you know, to build up your own on-site center. If, you're, if it's in Azure, it's more easier to rebuild uh, just because it follows the same conventions, the same uh, protocols, and, and the same structure. So that, I mean, that's kind of what I see there. How are these cloud providers handling the logging? And is it actually helpful for the organization? Or are they better off doing their own logging? None of the cloud providers do good logging. So you have to do on you have to do on site. So the, the best companies have a SIM on site, which is pulling all their logs from the cloud into their centralized SIM. Because Amazon, Azure, they, they can take the logs, but they can't they can't you, you have to add on. So for logging, you have to add in a module within cloud. You can't rely on the native uh, CloudWatch and Amazon or Azure to, to do the logging, to, you know, based on your internal policies. So you have to build in the cloud. You kind of have to manually configure it, or you can take those logs and go on site. So you're saying like 80/20. So that's where one thing where a lot of a lot of secure companies will do their SIM still on site. Uh, also, like intrusion detection. So obviously you get you get you get some native intrusion detection with Amazon Azure, which is like denial of service. Uh, you know, they can do a lot of those basic defaults. But what happens if you're trying to do application layer detections of intrusions or some of that stuff that's customized to your environment? You know, the default for these clouds is just default for, for everyone, universal rules. They, Amazon, they, they can't just manually configure each instance to, to your environment. And, and so there's a couple of things where you kind of need to add on additional controls uh, beyond just the native security settings of these cloud providers. What's it going to take for innovation insecurity in your in your mind James having been at the accounting firms you've been at having been at the healthcare companies that you've been at having the certifications you have and now being independent like you are um, what's it going to take for organizations to get to a state of security innovation and how close are we well it's security is always behind the eight ball with, with any with any new systems and with innovation, I, I, what I'm starting to see more innovation and security go on is, is you know, you know, ten years ago it was all about perimeter, perimeter security, and now we're starting to see detection, prevention, uh, monitoring, controls. Well, what I'm starting to see more and more now is isolation of where the data is. Uh, so, so with cloud, so a lot of people they'll isolate all their PHI into a cloud and pull it away from their corporate network because they, they, you have to assume that your perimeters will be breached, and, and so then. Once you once you go from the perimeter, can you get into where the date, the, where the gold, the Fort Knox? Can they, can they transverse that environment? And so what I'm seeing now for innovation is is security more where the data actually is, not just spending just tons of money all over the place, but focusing on where the risk is. And, and so like the firewall rules, you're starting to see you know so the good companies are really implementing strong controls around where the data is and loosening them as they get out. So on the perimeter, it's a lot lower rules. Uh, traditionally, it's been strong, really strong on the perimeter, and as you get in, I mean, once you kind of get in, then you're kind of in, you can go anywhere. So that's where I, I guess I'm seeing the innovation going to now. 
So there's been a lot of talk about data breaches in recent years. It's very costly. The average cost per compromised record is around um, 140 to 150, maybe 155, depending upon the industry. And in the healthcare space, it's it's up, upwards of 315, and some reports is as high as $380 per compromised record. Uh, that's from the Ponymon Institute. I think those those um, numbers are a little bit inflated. Uh, but the point is that the cost of a data breach is very expensive. Another thing that's interesting about data breaches is that the average organization um, doesn't know about them until well after the fact. And the number one way of notic notification is from a third party, meaning an auditor or the authorities tell you, hey, you know, your data has been breached. And so this may be you know, three, four, five, six, seven months, sometimes even a year after it happened. With Equifax, we're talking about five and a half months after they were breached, they then found out that they were breached. Now, in their case, they were told what they needed to patch. They didn't patch it because they had bad prioritization of patch management. But I want to hear from you and your experience as you know, a third-party risk uh, assessor, uh, IT auditor, and overall security technologist, what have you seen around data loss prevention? Right, so uh, data loss prevention, you know, a lot of times when people want to implement data loss prevention, they go buy a tool and put it in place. Uh, so it's, you're trying to look for the critical data elements. But you know, there's, but it's, I always look at data loss prevention as, as a bigger picture, trying to look at where the data is and block the, the data from leaving wherever you store that data. And so a tool is obviously one scenario. A lot of times I've seen people where they just just block everything. Uh, and so I was just, uh, a company was a, a print and mail vendor in which we talked to them about how to implement data loss prevention. And so we actually had uh, a lot of back and forth conversations, several of them, uh, probably in, in a couple of hours worth of time, were going through and just implementing a data loss prevention solution. And what, what we kind of ended up coming up with is, is totally create an offline process to print the PHI. So there's no electronic connections to these environments. So literally we're, we're sending encrypted USB drive to this vendor and they're running their offline system to, to print these, these, these records and, and print them out. So it's like, that's to me, it's like the best data loss prevention strategy you can do is so, so that you can do a process, you can do, you can do a tool, there's many different ways you got to look at where the data is, like draw a big circle on a whiteboard, and then every exit where that data can leave, uh, have a process to block or detect that data from leaving. Well said. And again, data is your most valuable asset. For the organizations that James and I are trying to serve, data is their gold. Data is everything. And that's what the threat actor wants. They want your data. They can commit lots of different frauds with the data. They can sell it on the black market. Your data needs to be hugely, hugely protected. Some industries are more data-centric than others, but um, data is continuing to be more and more relevant. And then the other thing about data is it really tells you everything you need to know. Every piece of data that you have at your organization, doesn't matter what your organization is, will tell you what you need to know. The question is, can you decipher it and can you do the math to get relevant, contextually aware answers? And that's the really hard part. And this kind of leads into the whole logging debate. And I know, uh, James, you have some you know exposure and experience around logging. 
and how organizations can do it effectively, but just a few statistics around log management. So the false positive rate that comes out of logs is somewhere around 50 to 60%. So most organizations in their SOCs and all the way up to the CISO, they're spending thousands, if not millions, chasing down false positives. And they literally have to do it because they don't know uh, if that one false positive could be a part of a true positive, and if they don't chase it down, then you know they it could be something, and so they're overwhelmed. And if we look at the state of the tools, so I've written a couple of posts on tools and what their capabilities are, and this kind of gets at the broader question of state of machine learning, state of AI, etc. There's a lot of hype out there around security tools that are able to best use logs to somehow come up with machine learning to better protect your organization. And all of that is dependent upon good configuration for your organization. But I just want to stop here and just hear from you, James, what's been your experience with good log management? So, yeah, so the one thing you got to realize is a lot of these hackers, they can see the same tools that you have. So they can see the same how your default logging is set up. So it's, you need to do logging, especially since as IT audit background that's required by a lot of compliance requirements but you really want to look at where are the critical areas hackers want to get into. And just think of your car. You want to protect your car from getting broken into. And so anybody can go in. They, they, they can go to the, the city of a Chevy. They can go to the GM manual, pull up all the information, what wires to cut, what, where, where to put the key in, how to break in. But why don't we do something a little custom? Why don't you set up, uh, you put a remote disconnect on the battery. So if you, if you hit the button, it doesn't matter what you do in the ignition, you're not going to get the car started. So the same thing with, with log management of a company, why don't you do something a little custom, set up um, a honeypot, set, set up some areas where you have a server that there, there should be no connection going to that server. You just say a VM environment, you can, put, you can stand up a VM, put it in your environment. If anybody pings that box, boom, you should get a security alert. And then that, 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 a lot of those will be a lot more, instead of being false positives, you know there's something fishing going on because there's some, some process in your environment doing something that they shouldn't be. So set up like kind of those little landmines that that they, they can trigger and detect a, a malicious incident within your company. You know, the challenge you have is a lot of these you have to do just because of IT audit requirements, but it, just do that little extra. A lot of these are, are not that hard to set up. Um, you know, if you have 100 VMs, what's the cost of setting up uh, one more? Uh, so there's, there's different strategies. It's thinking outside the box, find something custom that a hacker would probably trip going into it. Something outside of the, of the of the baseline manual that they're not aware of. So the honey pots and the honey nets, hugely, hugely valuable. More organizations need to be doing that, and um, I think you're gonna see you're gonna see a lot more of that. Some of the things you've just been talking about were kind of getting that creativity to add one more VM. Um, when you already have a hundred, it really isn't a big cost. Uh, I get that, but sometimes uh, security is lacking in in these organizations, and it's because they don't think creatively. It's because they're forced to think the way that they've always thunk, and, and they're biased by accounting firms. And it's not to say that they don't do some good work; they do. But let's face it, this is a broken industry. Uh, more breaches are going to happen. More network penetration is going to happen. Companies are literally going to go out of business because of this. People are going to lose their job. One last question, and that is how do, we, how do we bait creativity into security? 
Right. So, uh, is, you know, that's a great question because everyone has a limited budget, limited resources. So you're going to focus your, your resources on, you know, where the risk is. So it just kind of back, can you isolate that data? And, you know, instead of trying to secure, uh, let's go back to the VMs, 100 VMs, what happens only four of them have the data? Can you isolate that in a separate cloud environment? Can you isolate it on a separate subnet? And then put your security controls in place there. So it's so you can dedicate your resources, isolate the data, uh, and, and actually might save a lot of money. And then also, when when you keep like a, a standalone cloud, and that's where all the data is, you can probably reduce a lot of your IT compliance requirements because they're not going to have to look at 100 firewalls; they only need to look at two. One thing that comes to mind hearing you is simplicity and duplicative data. So my background, as um, some of my listeners may know, you know, I spent uh, a number of time consulting at some health insurance companies, and I did a lot with infrastructure decommission and a lot of deletion and identification of duplicate data. So a lot of organizations have this duplicative data. So you're talking about the VMs, which are the, which are the four are the most critical. That's just it. You got to know and be able to map what really matters because not everything does. And if something doesn't matter, um, or if something is needlessly duplicative, get rid of it, delete it. That's one way to reduce the attack surface. And I know for big organizations, that's hard because they have so much. But technology is changing, and it allows you to get more out of one tool. And that's it's a good way to do it is just simplify. Because if you don't, then your executives have the problem of fog. There's so much complexity that they can't see straight through all of it to make good decisions. So, you know, I, I fear for that IT executive who is getting executive summary reports with conflicting information and ambiguous presentations, and they're looking at that going, how do I make a decision out of this? And that's a lot of them. They don't know. And then, you know, you would want to hire a firm like ours to come in, help you make some sense of that, dig a little bit deeper, and see what really is going on there and how can we make things better? That's what we do here in Abstract Forward Consulting is uh, we disrupt to make things better. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it needs to happen because the traditional uh, firms haven't haven't been able to provide that. So with that, um, we're going to close out our podcast today. Again, today's topic uh, was around third-party risk management and, and related concepts. Our guest today was James Redmond multi-certified and experienced security practitioner. So thanks again, everybody, for for being here. And uh, we hope to catch you sometime soon.